Hi, this is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Surgical Robotics presents an enormous opportunity for companies. There are surgeon shortages, sporadic healthcare, and miraculous technological advancement in both robotics and communications. So to understand where this sector is headed, we invited senior executives from Intuitive to share their company's impressive story. Change is coming. Consider these upcoming episodes to be guideposts for the future to follow. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Very happy to bring you this conversation I had with CEO Gary Guthart at our Device Talks West meeting. Gary Guthart was kind enough to be our keynote speaker or our keynote interview guest. And uh, it was a terrific time. I wish you were there. If you didn't attend Device Talks West this year, make sure you register next year. Uh, this is a much more pleasant experience in person. But I think a podcast is a pretty good way of hearing what was said as well. So very happy to share this interview with you with Gary Guthart. In this talk, we'll talk about where Intuitive is headed, how it views the competition, and what surgical robotics might look like in 20 years, or is it even still going to be around? We'll see. But before I begin this interview, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Opticos Corporation. I'm speaking with founder and president, Steve Fantone. Steve, tell us about Opticos. Opticos is a corporation I founded 40 years ago. It was primarily directed towards the development of optical technology and the implementation of those technologies into products, starting originally with commercial products. We've since grown in many different ways, and one of them is into the life sciences arena. Fully half of our business now is in life sciences, and we have a team and facilities that are really directed towards that life sciences area. We'll hear more from Steve Fantone about Opticos a little later in the podcast. If you'd like to find out that information right now, go to Opticos's website. It is Opticos.com. That is O-P-T-I-K-O-S.com. I want this conversation to be sort of forward-looking, future-looking, and I'd love to understand, and you described it, the moment you used the intuitive system for the first time at SRI, you had a vision, or at least you saw where this was going and what could this, that this could be. Could you go back to that time and just kind of recount, if you would, the, the sensations, the feelings you were having when you, when you kind of touched it for the first time? Yeah, so robotic assisted surgery. Um, uh, predates Intuitive, predates me, and uh, one of the early sites that was doing research, Stanford Research Institute, SRI International, was Phil Green and Ajit Shah, a guy named John Hill, and Joel Jensen. They, they had built that vision there, started in the late 80s. Um, when, by the time I joined, I was uh, an applied math type, so I was a technologist, physics undergrad, and an applied math graduate student, and I joined. And this was 93. They had a prototype working, and it was kind of an open surgery thing. Had two cameras and was not endoscopic at this time. It was an open surgery uh, telerobot. And they, they were interested in getting somebody to help with some of the math. That's where I came in. I got to sit down and try it. And they, they gave me a, a task to do manually. They, they gave me um, 
uh, a couple of uh, Castro Viejos, a couple of these grips, and tiny suture and and very small thin tubes to to anastomose together, to suture together with a set of loops, handheld loops. And I I a technology person, so I fooled around with stuff in my garage. I was constantly taking things apart and putting them together, so I felt like I had some assembly skill. And it was really hard, you know, with those loops. I could do it, but wow, is it hard? They said, okay, set that down and come sit over here in this thing. And it it looked it looked like it was right out of a a sci-fi movie. You know, the wires hanging out of it was a prototype. The, the computer was a cabinet the size of the lectern. It was big. And, uh, but I just loved it. And they said, now try this. And it had tremor filtration. It had um, high dexterity instrumentation. Um, it had really good magnification, 3D magnification, 3D system. And this is, you know, 90, 93, and it was a good 3D system. Wow. And so sitting there doing it, it was like, well, this is a ton easier uh, to do. It was really impressive. And it was one of those moments where you sort of, you know, a demo's worth a thousand words, and, and everybody in the audience knows that. I, I think you can talk and talk and talk. You can send people scientific abstracts. You can show PowerPoint slides. But if you can try it, it, it makes a difference. And I tried it. I, I stood up from that. And I went, wow, this is awesome. If, if this can work, mm-hmm. if we can really do that, then uh, it will change the face of what people do. And I went over to my boss at SRI at the time and, and said, can I transfer into that group? And I had a this guy named Raul Martinez. Raul said, all right, you know, finish up your work and I'll, I'll get you transferred into this other group. So he was a good boss. And off I went. So it was fantastic. But if I recall, you needed some, some convincing to, to join into it proper to go to the corporate side. What was, the, what was holding you back? The, uh, uh, so uh, Intuitive was founded uh, by folks that I, I had not met. Um, there were three founders to Intuitive in, in late 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fred Mall, a surgeon, Rob Young, a technologist, and John Freund on the financing side. They came over to SRI, I licensed the technology, and I met them as a young uh, engineer in my 20s. And uh, they invited me to join. Uh, Rob did. Rob called me up and said, why don't you come over? And, and I had just gotten a promotion uh, at SRI. I was kind of in the heart of my technical career. And I felt like I was going fine. And I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what to make of all of this stuff. I wasn't yeah, deeply immersed in Silicon Valley culture, mm-hmm. and it talked about things like stock options, and I didn't know what that was. I had to phone a friend. What, do you, <laughs> what is this thing? Um, and so I said no. And the first first time I said no, and and they called back and said we should we think you ought to reconsider I mean, the kinds of things you're doing. We think we we called it at Intuitive. We called it being a systems analyst, kind of a control systems engineer. We think we could use you, and we think you'd be good. And uh, so I took a second meeting. I uh, talked to my wife, and she was like, hey, we're young. We had a one-year-old daughter. Um, now's the time to take a risk. Don't, don't. Early, bigger risk is, is better earlier. That was her advice. Mm-hmm. And I talked to uh, John Freund. He took me out to coffee. And he, the way he convinced me is he said, hey, the applied research market will always be there. There will always be a need for that. Why don't you see what it like, takes to actually translate the technology from the lab into actual use? Why don't you have that experience? If it goes great, great. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't go great, you'll be a more valuable applied researcher because you'll know what it takes to do the translation. And I was like, that's absolutely true. I should have had that thought. He's absolutely right. So uh, after that, I said yes. And and wow, am I glad he called me back. Yeah, no kidding. It worked out well. I'm sure there's lessons about stock options help as well, too. Yeah, and they helped (laughs) learn what stock options were. That's That's, true. That's great. So let's talk about where we're going to sort of fast forward 20 20 years or so. To, to where we are today and, and look a little bit about the path that got you here. Give us a sense of Intuitive's reach today globally in the U.S. And 
how, how deeply have you penetrated the market for surgical robotics? You, you, you've been, the company's been here for a time. You would think that now you, you may have not reached a saturation point, but you would have at least, there would have been a deep penetration in the surgical robotics market. But I'm always shocked at how much larger the market is than the market you have at the moment. Yeah, it's big, maybe, maybe bigger than you think. Um, yeah. We'll take a quick break from this conversation to bring back Steve Fantone. He's the president of Opticos. Steve, how does Opticos work with medical device companies? Oftentimes, companies come to us with an, what they view as an optical problem. Part of what we do that's a little bit different from others is that we're trying to understand the really underlying problem that they're trying to solve using optical technology. And in order to really be successful at that, we want to make sure we understand the problem, that we have a full set of specifications that describe the need that we're looking to meet, and that then we're able to really take a targeted shot at designing the prototypes so that they will be fully responsive to the specification and customer needs. We are really laser-focused on this issue of customer success and what we can do to really enable that so that it was successful on the first try and we were able to get things to market as quickly as possible. So Steve, are you working with a small subset of the medical device industry? I think most people would be surprised at how much optical technology is contained within many medical devices. The most obvious ones are things like endoscopes or ophthalmoscopes, but others, things like gene sequencing equipment, uh, PCR systems, all are based on optical measurements, measurements of fluorescence, measurements of transmission, measurements of color. And that's what we bring to our customers is a capability of working with any kind of optical technology as it is applied to medical devices. We'll hear a little more from Steve Fantone of Opticos a little later in the podcast. I'm always shocked at how much larger the market is than the market you have at the moment. Yeah, it's big, maybe, maybe bigger than you think. Um, yeah. Kind of zooming out, in, in the United States, if you just ask, these numbers are approximate, so don't, uh, don't get too attached. But at the, at the top level, if you ask, how many surgeries are there a year where you need general anesthesia? Just sort of start there. The numbers give or take 20, 21 million a year in the United States annually that are uh, general anesthesia. And then you say of that, there are a bunch of different segments, many of which we don't participate in. So uh, there's orthopedics, knees, hips, spine, there's cranial, there's eyes, eyes laser eye surgery, other things. Um, we, don't, we don't participate in those. So if you kind of narrow down to the ones we do participate in, there are about 7 million a year, give or take. Um, and if you go through and you say, well, how many did you do last year? In the United States, in globally intuitive um, surgeons using our platform performed, I think, 1.3 million, give or take, mm -hmm. uh, last year um, on, a, on a base that's, that's, give or take, five, six, seven as a reasonable number that is accessible to the existing DaVinci platform. So relative to just what we think we can do with a DaVinci platform in global markets, maybe a quarter penetrated mm -hmm. on a per-procedure basis. That doesn't count things like flexible robotics, which is our ION platform. It doesn't count where we want to go with new indications that we're working on, additional ways to, to, to reach the body. 
So I think this idea of computer-assisted surgery is still really nascent. It's been around for 20 years. It's still nascent. And there are uh, plenty of companies. There are several companies doing work on robotic assistance in hips, knees, joints, shoulders, spine. Uh, there are others that are using similar concepts for uh, ablative techniques and ablative technologies. I'm sure we'll talk about that. So I, I, I think there's decades worth of additional opportunity. I think we're still what amounts to the early market. So let's talk about your, and I do want to get into Ion, and you had some, you're very kind to schedule your analyst call the day before the meeting. So We, we tried to arrange that. that was, it was really awesome. Thank you. It, it helps. Uh, so you're, 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 I think, the best case for a first mover into, into a space. I mean, you're, 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 as you mentioned, there have been others who have, have moved into surgical robotics, but it's interesting. Whenever I interview any other surgical robotic company, your name comes up, not only specifically, but when they're trying to describe their product, because they say their product is, then they pause and they go, Intuitive. It's like eh, it's like they can't help but give you a plug. <laughs> so you're you're uh, you've been a move first mover for a long time, but the competition, as you mentioned, is coming. Uh, how do you view as someone who holds so much of that territory? Do you view that as as competition? Do you view that as as some power that's going to some tailwind that's going to push you along? What is your sort of view of the others who are coming into the space? Yeah, uh, let me touch on one thing about first movers, and then I'll, I'll come around to how do we think about as the space becomes more uh, crowded. Um, there was a uh, FDA cleared uh, surgical uh, telepresence system before us. It was the Zeus system from Computer Motion down in mm. Santa Barbara, and the the founder and CEO Yulin Wong is actually has become over time a, a friend and colleague. Um, so the concept has been out there. We actually were not literally the first to have a cleared okay. product, uh, but but ours met customer need. And, and the early concept of the Zeus was roboticizing laparoscopy. The idea was, hey, we're going to make laparoscopy and the whole user interface feeling of laparoscopy mechanized. We're going to put robots in there, and that'll help. And we had a different idea. So it was actually similar technology, but a different use case. Hmm. In, in our world, our concept was, hey, we, we want to return to surgeons the feeling of open surgery and retain the benefits of minimally invasive surgery for uh, the patient. So this actually gets to a point that will be interesting when we talk about competition, is technology is out there available to anybody, and many of you are providers of that technology. So we all go shopping at the same place. We all have the same kind of basic ideas about where base technology is. But how you assemble it and what you try to do, what your goal set is, differs. Okay, that, uh, competition. I, I think in three broad categories, and they are always there. The, the first broad category is actually a pa at the patient-centric level. A patient is diagnosed with the disease and starts the journey to understand what the treatment options are, of which surgery is one, often. Uh, surgery is often, in the case of many cancers, both the most effective and the lowest cost and the highest likelihood of, of cure. So surgery becomes a, big, a good option for, for a lot of people if things are caught early. So we're competing with immunotherapies. We're competing with external beam radiation, mm -hmm. you know, companies like Varian and Electa. Uh, we're competing with watchful waiting. We're competing with all sorts of other things that people can do. I actually think that is the most important form of clinical and economic competition. I'm going to come back to that. The second part is, hey, there are other people who have concepts and ideas in robotics that are similar to ours. And so they put out a system that has 
a little bit different configuration of the robots, or it has a little bit different way it interacts with the surgeon, but essentially it's the same idea. That's kind of a head-to-head. -head. Mm -hmm. We have a pickup truck, they have a pickup truck. Who, who wants to buy which pickup truck? Okay, there's that kind of competition. I think that's what you're asking. There's a third kind, which is somebody who comes along and says, hey, I'm gonna use a different architecture altogether. You're using these big robots and they have these instruments that snap on, and I wanna use a mechanized snake and go after it with a mechanized mm -hmm. snake. It's, it's three different things. Um, I care a lot about the first one, uh, that we wanna make sure that we are competitive from the point of view of clinical outcomes for a patient undergoing disease. We feel like if we can invest there, which means how do we do about outcomes in surgery, how do we do with uh, changing the outcome bar, raising the bar? We, we think that is positioning us really well for the long term. We don't ignore the one in the middle, which is those companies that are saying, hey, I'm gonna make an intuitive-like system, but I'm gonna change this technical feature or that technical feature. We pay attention to that, mm -hmm. but I don't lose a ton of sleep over that. I, I think those are design choices. We have fantastic designers. So those are kind of easy to understand. And then the third category, uh, those are great opportunities for us uh, either to innovate ourselves, ION is such an example, or they're great collaboration partners. There are, there are opportunities that come up on new architectures we think are really interesting. That was a, a long answer. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the first group then, who, what are your objectives with that first group? Is It's merely, not merely, it, it, the intention is to make sure your, your devices perform best and, and perform those procedures with the best outcomes, you're just looking at it as a medical advice company. I'll, I'll ask, can I ask the audience a question? Now? Sure. Just ask the question, how many, how many folks have had a surgery of some sort? You're willing to raise your hand, yeah. Any Da Vinci patients in the room? Uh, none. Um, the, uh, it's, if you look at prostate cancer surgery, so gland in the man in the, in the pelvis, uh, high frequency of cancer, if you choose to take it out uh, surgically, the positive surgical margin rate, meaning the, the likelihood that the surgeon, when they're dissecting it, leaves some cancer behind because they cut the cancer, that, that rate varies between 20 and 30%. So somewhere between one in five and, and one in three men will have residual cancer left behind. And it's because you can't see the cancer with your naked eye, but you can light it up. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we've found, working with academic partners, molecules that will bind to the cancer tissue we attach a fluorophore to that molecule and then image it using fluorescence imaging. And the, as a result, the surgeon can see in real time, not ex post facto, hey, I left some cancer behind, I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna continue the resection. It's real time pathology during the case. We think that will drop the positive, positive surgical margin rate significantly. You can ask, well, what's the negative consequence of positive surgical margin? Is it immediately cancer recurrence? The answer is not really. But what will happen is if you find additional cancer, you may have biochemical recurrence, you may have it come back, or you may have to go get adjuvant therapy, which means you get radiation in addition to surgery. Mm -hmm. So um, these things are hugely powerful. And you say, okay, but the people who are working on the radiation machines, and you know, God bless them, thank, thank goodness there are, there are radiation technologies out there, I think they're important, they're working on their advances. So what happens in radiation? If you have imprecise targeting, you wind up damaging healthy tissue. That healthy tissue can, can create nerve damage. It creates urinary incontinence, and, and fecal incontinence can create other things. Radiation starts to degrade over time. So if you radiate something, it tends to be healthiest right after the radiation, and then over time, those tissues will degrade, such that years later, it's hard. Mm -hmm. So that is core treatment level competition 
and we want to make sure that we can do things that continue to be to be innovative there and change the outcomes. And we're not chasing one or two percent complication rates. If if I could share with you the clinical data on all these common conditions, you would be shocked at what the level of complication rates are. Not specific to da Vinci, but open surgery, laparoscopy, da Vinci surgery. So there's an enormous opportunity for core, serious value creation. Mm -hmm. So uh, our saying inside the company is, we really want to innovate what's happening inside the tissue. We really want to innovate what's happening inside the body, because that is is core value creation. We will attend to competition that is feature-based competition. We understand that that comes down to good design. And we will look for new opportunities and new platforms and partner them where we can. And does focusing on that first group change your nature? Because again, it sounds like you're, you're a medical device company. You're, you're not a robotics company. You're, you're really looking at the, the, the points that touch the body more than the arms or, the, or whatever moves, moves the system. We, we are uh, experts in robotics, but we don't define ourselves as a robotics company. Hmm. Um, and I think you know, we're going to talk a little later about what could this all look like 20 years from now, yeah. 30 years from now, and all these designations of what's robotic and what's medical device, all those lines will blur. They're blurring now. Interesting. In a sense, it doesn't matter. It's going to be how do you assemble a really good technology ecosystem to get a good outcome, whether you call it a robot or not. But anyway. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I'm back with Steve Fantone of Opticos. Steve, we're talking a lot about surgical robotics today. I imagine you must do a lot of business with those companies. We're involved in many different aspects of visualization in the medical fields, both conventional imaging and 3D imaging. And whether it's robotic surgery or it's ophthalmic surgery or just getting better visualizations in hard places to view, uh, we can bring a technological solution to that. So, so Steve, how is Opticos growing to, uh, to handle this, uh, this rising demand? The increase in optics and imaging in the medical device area over the last decade has really enabled significant growth at Opticos in both our staff and our facilities. We've added tens of thousands of square feet of space, clean room, testing capabilities, manufacturing tools, and all of the support systems that are required for that, including ISO 13485 and an ability to really to prosper and work within the medical device area. So we, in many ways, consider ourselves to be a one-stop solution for those with optical needs in the medical device area. Well, that's great. Thank you to Opticos Corp for sponsoring this episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast. Thanks, Steve Antone, for your time and insights. Once again, if you'd like to find out more information about Opticos, go to its website, opticos.com. That's O-P-T-I-K-O-S dot com. Well, let's talk about ION now because you did have some great news last night in your analyst call, and maybe you can give us an update on on the the, the units that you've been that you've moved. You had a strong quarter there, and I have to, we did a podcast with um, with Charlie Dean and Oliver Wagner about ION, and it was one of those moments where just hearing them describe having a robot system that's small enough and that's nimble enough, nimble enough to get into the very distant edges of the lungs to to, to to, to both diagnose and potentially to treat. We'll get into that. 
it was one of those light bulb moments. You're like, oh my God, that makes yeah. all, it's not, it's not helping a surgeon do something they're doing and helping them doing something better. You're actually blazing new territory. So I'm stealing your thunder, but tell us about your quarter uh, with ION because it was very strong. And tell us a bit about the ION program and where it's headed because it, it, your news did include something that I wasn't, I don't think I was aware of about the ablation. Yeah, just two seconds on what, it, what is it. Um, uh, our ION product is uh, computer controlled, uh, robotic backend, robotically assisted, uh, steerable, flexible catheter. The catheter is about a meter long. Uh, it has fiber optic sensing all the way through it, so we have something called shape sensing, which means that we, we know not only where the tip is, but we know where the, inner, the, the body of the catheter is everywhere in between both, both sides. Uh, it has a through lumen in it. Um, we do a preoperative scan of the, of the chest. We get a 3D map of a patient's individual lungs, so we create Apple maps for that patient's lungs. Uh, and then we help the surgeon or interventional pulmonologist navigate that instrumented catheter uh, in, deep into the lungs to go sample tissue. Um, lung cancer, high incident rate, it's usually number two or number three in the country, depending on where you are. It's typically, lung cancer is typically the highest mortality rate of the cancers. So it's not always the highest incident, it is usually the highest mortality rate. Uh, finding those samples early, finding definitive diagnostic early matters. Most uh, early detected lesions are in the periphery of the lung. They're not near the main bronchial channel. That means is it's hard to go get the tissue. It's hard to figure out where it is. And there have been various technologies and approaches to get that. We do it uh, transorally. So you go through the mouth, into the lungs, use this preoperative map, drive your catheter using your preoperative map, sample a, a bit of that lung tissue, come back. That's what ION does today. Mm -hmm. There's some hard technical issues there. There's some interesting uh, clinical workflow challenges, but anyway, we worked through those things. Um, we started a, a prospective trial called the Precise Trial. Interim data started to look really good on that. Um, later data, I think, was just published uh, this week at CHEST. At, at the CHEST, it was just announced. Um, the uh, final data on that looks as good as the interim data looked, and that's been, I think, underpinning um, nice uptick in the marketplace. So we're still in the early market. I think the total install base of ION systems in the United States is between 100 and 200. Um, that, that will be early. But utilization continues to increase, so they're using it a lot. And um, the uh, both uh, install base is growing and the procedures per system installed are growing. So mm -hmm. that's, it's being quite productive. I think that uh, pulmonologists are finding it's doing what we had hoped for. Uh, it's competitive. There are other technologies in the market that are guided but manual. So they use a map, but they don't use a robot. There are other technologies that are out there that are both robotic and guided. And uh, so far, the performance of ours, its workflow, um, kind of the total ecosystem that surrounds that product has been strong, and that's driven our growth. So do you see that ION being a model of, of where you're headed, and will that become a Will these systems that are, are that are going after areas that DaVinci aren't, will that be a larger priority business or in the future do you see DaVinci always being sort of the flagship product and these others being part of the fleet? Uh, time will tell. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think in the, in the near term, uh, opportunity for DaVinci multi-port uh, soft tissue surgery is quite strong. And as I said before, I think we're somewhere between a fifth and a and a quarter penetrated in the opportunity we have. So there's clearly opportunity there. The flexible technologies, you can think about uh, navigating tubular structures in the body 
and being able to, to pick up uh, tissues, to sense the tissues, so you can have in, in onboard sensing, or you can drop off or intervene, interventional methods with those technologies, and that's the conversation about ablation, is okay, if I can navigate somewhere with very high precision, if I can deliver packages and take them out, what is it that I can do for a, for a physician and a patient? Mm -hmm. And that opens real opportunity in the lung for sure, and that's our first application area, and we're quite focused on it. But it'll open opportunity in other tubular structures outside the lung as well. And I think over time that that opportunity will grow. How is your relationship with uh, with with customers, with hospitals, with physicians? How is that changing? I think in the call yesterday you, you suggested that. You saw some uh, some movement in, in workforce issues that the hospitals were having an easier time, but it's, it's a difficult time for the healthcare system overall. How are you working with them to help them see the value in what you're doing and what you're providing and ensuring that they're able to get it? Yeah, one, one of the important things for us and one of the things we've really focused on in the last six, seven years has been uh, hospitals, particularly administrators, don't care about robots at all. That, that is not... They don't care or they don't like them? That, that's, well, a decade ago, I'd say they didn't like them. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that's where they are now. I actually think uh, they see the value in them now. But I, but I think it's a, it's a means to an end. Mm -hmm. So start with the end in mind, right? What's the end? What are they looking for? They want to be able to treat their patient population with great outcomes. They want to attract, retain, and develop the best of the physician staff that they can. And they need to manage their cost per intervention. they got to manage the economics, both the revenue side and the cost side of whatever interventions they provide. And so we start there. Um, so it, it isn't really a question of robot versus robot. It's can you deliver a full program or not? Can you demonstrate to them true value of that full program? So the program is something they define, it's their words, the quadruple aim. Better outcomes, better care team experience, better patient experience, lower, lower total cost per uh, episode of care. And we measure that. We've actually built a program that allows us to do collaborative work with them and their, their electronic medical records to be able to demonstrate that value as it compares to open surgery or laparoscopy or robotics. And in that setting, I think they look at it quite positively because it's data-driven, and it's not data-driven on a white paper. It's data-driven based on their own data sets mm -hmm. and their own dashboards. So I think that's been a really strong um, supporter for total value around a robotics program, it's really changed the conversation. And I think as we look at complex dynamics like staffing, there are some hospitals that are in a really defensive position. The, there's been a nursing shortage or skilled nursing staffing shortage before the pandemic was exacerbated by retirements in the pandemic. Uh, if a hospital is in a really defensive position, they're having a hard time actually providing the first line care. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then they've got to solve that problem. Often they solve that problem by using uh, paying higher wages. So there's wage inflation, and that has helped them solve the first-line care problem, which is I can give you the procedure. But then they have a follow-on care problem after the procedure, and, and that is you, you have to care for patients in the rooms. You've got to follow them up. Uh, surgeons and doctors have to, have to round on that set of patients. High-quality minimally invasive surgery discharges patients sooner. They have fewer complications. They take fewer drugs they're less likely to have a serious issue, for example, in the ICU. Hmm. So if they can do the cases, it is highly efficacious for them to do high-quality MIS versus open surgery or, or less predictable lab. And we're very strong for them in that regard. So 
that saves them downstream costs. It relieves downstream staffing pressures. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you can do the surgery, we save nursing expenses after the surgery. So how much more are you committing to, to data? That was one, one area that I completely overlooked when I first started talking to your team. And I talked to a few folks about the, the data collection, gathering analysis that you're providing. How essential a part of that? It's obviously an essential part of your business. Is it a growing part of your business? And is, is, it, is it one that's going to continue to grow? I think uh, for many of us, I, it's it's an interesting guy. D- data has always been uh, a part of certainly any uh, automation robotics um, uh, telepresence system. You're going to have both interest in data and access to it from the very beginning. So mm-hmm. in some sense, we talk about intuitive as being born digital. You, you have to do it and track it. Uh, we have access to an opportunity to evaluate a lot of data now. If hospitals are willing to share electronic medical record data, we can connect, think of it as federated data, we can connect electronic medical record data with the, the data from the actual surgery to the follow-up data. It's anonymized, it's cyber secure, you need to take care of all those things. But you can start looking for, for patterns or for correlations between uh, patient preoperative condition, surgeon care team behaviors, and then outcome in the end. Uh, those things are crazy powerful, sure. su- super powerful. So we're investing in that. We care about it. Um, we have many uh, data partnerships with our our customers to do that, and those efforts are bearing fruit. They're they're producing insights that are actionable by our customer base. Um, getting the economics right isn't always trivial. It's a little bit easier to say it than it is to do it, um, and we're working through that. But I I think it will be value creating for hospitals. I think it will be. Um, uh, value creating for intuitive over time, but it takes a little bit of effort and infrastructure to get in there. What, what might that effort look like? In <coughs> is, is it something that you could pull out as a almost a consulting arm or something, or will the data you provide always be connected to what intuitive can and cannot deliver? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there's where we are today is we, we will provide uh, we and we already do provide a significant amount of data insight for any of our customers without additional charge. Mm-hmm. So uh, just by working with us, we will, we will help them see the basics of their programs. There are some things that we can do that either allow them to do additional research, of which they are interested because they have a research mission, or can uh, generate additional follow-on benefits for them, in which case we'll uh, charge them uh, a consulting fee or other fee for it. In general, uh, those things are relatively small. A lot of the, the core value is just built into the platform. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I almost hesitated not to ask this, but I'll ask about supply chain disruptions. How, how has supply chain hit you? Has it impeded your production at all? Has it kept you from shipping? Uh, how many folks in the room are supply chain related one way or another? Yeah, the way we talk about it is it is a uh, Western bar fight yeah. that goes on d- day after day without end. <laughs> um, it's hard. Uh, it has not been trivial. I, I, if somebody else in the audience has a better description, I'll hear it. I'm, I'm open to it. But I would say, you know, a, a typical DaVinci system has about 10,000 components. Wow. Single device, 10,000 components. And of those, they're everything from things straight out of somebody's catalog, it's a pretty standard device, all the way up to custom machined or molded parts that are sourced from a lot of places in the world, some of whom may be in the room. And uh, so you see challenges in the things you read about, semiconductor manufacturing and semiconductors. You see challenges in raw material supply, plastics, and, and some of the other things that you need. The team, our team had done a nice job early on uh, building safety stocks. 
ahead of a problem. So, you know, the best time to plant a fruit tree was 30 years ago. The second best time is today. Some of our folks had planted quite ahead of time. That gave us a little bit of time and flexibility. So I'm thankful to our operations leadership who had anticipated. Having said that, that only lasts you so long, and then you have to respond. And we have been responding um, every single day to uh, shortages. And one way to do it is is to call through and see if you can find shortages in this in the supply chain somewhere. Another way to do it is to switch to uh, parts that are available from parts that are not and qualify new parts. Um, uh, it, it, those are kind of your big choices. The other one is that you're, you're, you have substitutes available on hand that you've already pre-qualified. And we wind up doing all, all three. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think from our perspective, uh, the, the breadth of, of raw materials and components that are challenged has started to narrow. But it's not zero, and it's certainly not back to pre-pandemic levels. So it's the, the peak is behind us, but it's not something that we'd say is finished and we're, and we're done. And, and, our, and our safety stocks are not all the way back up to full, to full level. We're starting to rebuild them. How does your supplier list look today compared to 2019? Did you go, I've seen two strategies. We'll, we'll add 10 more to each product, or we're only going to two or three, and these are our, our folks and we're going to give them the business they need, and they're on they're on call. Yeah, for for it, you know we were interesting. Intuitive is really kind of three businesses under one umbrella. There's a robotics business, which is um, in the world of manufacturing, low volume, very high precision. Uh, there, you, you want to be careful about spreading uh, into a million suppliers. Mm-hmm. We, we'd rather work very closely with suppliers who understand our needs and and invest alongside them. Um, you'll, you'll never get to huge volumes that will make you a big player relative to somebody who's making cell phones. Gotcha. And you're much better off being close. We, we have a instrumentation and accessories business, the things that are in, used in every case that are much more high volume, more plastics, and those, those are built at millions, uh, millions a year. And those things, uh, you want to work with companies that have the volume and scale that can flex with you. Again, I don't think you want to spread it across the, the universe. And then there's what, what I think of as commodity supply, things that are catalog-based in there. You'd use a different strategies. It's not really a one-size-fits-all. Interesting. Okay. we got about five minutes. I, I, I would love to get your – we started this conversation about your, your, your experience 30 years ago, I guess. I was going to say 20 years ago, but let's, let's shorten the time to 20 years ago. We're at a point today where, at Mass Device and MDO, we're, we're writing about all different robotics companies. There's more than we can literally keep track of. And as we do our list of everything you need to know, we, need, we find out there's more we need to know about, about the robotic startups. So uh, I don't know where this ultimately ends up. They're certainly not all comp- competing technologies with each other or certainly with you. But what is, what is this digital surgery or robotic surgery system look like 20 years from now? Uh, is, it, is it all these different components owned by two or three entities? Is it, what does the surgical suite look like? How are you looking at, at the future when you're CEO 20 years from now? Yeah, well, z- z- zoom out maybe a little bit. I, I think, I don't think we'll be talking about robotic-assisted surgery or robotic-assisted intervention as something different than products. It won't be a subcategory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it, it just will it will be. I, it, there won't be a, a subsection of a group. It, this is the way things are done. I, I think you think about advanced imaging, cloud computing, uh, uh, mechatronic assistance, and 
and the workflows and human factors engineering that goes into that, I think it'll be built into to healthcare, period. I, it will be so ubiquitous, it will not be commented mm-hmm. upon. And when you're talking about device talks, it will be the rare one that does not have an intelligence component to it, not, not the other way. So I think that trend is already well underway and it's inexorable. Um, and as a result, I think there'll be a vibrant ecosystem of uh, entrepreneurs and small companies and large companies and consolidators who are working within that space and I think you're seeing the big consolidators realize that and pivot to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just reminds me a lot of electrification in automobiles. There's a point at which it's not an electric car, it's just a car. And it's a propulsion system in a car, and that's what people are doing. And I think we're not so far from that. I think the same will happen in our space. As too intuitive in what that looks like, um, I don't walk around thinking about us as a robotics company, but I think is we have a really good organization that can identify less than optimal clinical outcomes. We have a clinical team, and they work closely with our customers to say, where, where the outcome's just not very good. And then we have a bunch of designers, engineers, architects who can go through and say, how do we build a technology-enabled ecosystem that can substantially change that set of outcomes? Um, Notice there's nothing in there that says robot. It's just a set of technologies. And then we have an organization that I think that can realize that through manufacturing and deploy it in the field through commercial and training resources. Um, and in the end, we, we try to support that with the data analytics and cloud architecture. That, that is our internal concept, our architectural concept for the company. Mm-hmm. I think it's a durable concept. And, um, and as things like molecules come online, can we integrate them? So if you think of us as hardware plus optics plus software plus electronics, we started to add molecules, which is kind of wetware. Um, but it flows well in that total that total concept of a technology-enabled ecosystem that can deliver an outcome. So it's not, it's not hard for us to get our heads around. Uh, I think several companies will start to build that, that throughput, that idea. By adding molecules, you mean adding... Uh, oh, for example, contrast agents that can be used oh, okay. during surgery. That's, gotcha. that's what I meant on gotcha. the molecules. Okay. Sorry about that. No, no. That's, I wasn't sure if that's where you're going. <laughs> but so wrapping up, but just last question. We, we do see a whole, as I mentioned, a group of startups out there. Do those, most of those go away? Do there other technologies that, uh, absorbed? What do you see happening to this, just this crowd of, of surgical robotics startups? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I think, I'll just speak to the, past is predictive of the future, um, it can be done. There, there are, if you went back, if we were sitting here 20 years ago, there are about, um, between now, between then and now, about 25 commercial groups that had made serious attempts to deliver their, their robot systems to the market. Mm-hmm. Of those 25, five are in the market existing today, re- remain. And, and 20 were either absorbed or assets were sold or whatever. Um, so I think it's in, intuitive is one of the five that's standing, but there are several others. There's now 150 or 200 that are looking at robotic platforms of one sort or another. And you know the odds ratio is probably about the same. Yeah. Um, you can do it, it's hard to be, to be there and freestanding, but that set of odds is probably not so different from a uh, tech startup or the next generation uh, semiconductor chip or whatever. So it's, it's doable, but it's not trivial. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you so much for the time and the thoughts. Thank you. Appreciate it. (laughs) 
Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Intuitive Talks. Thanks, of course, to Opticos for sponsoring this episode and for Gary Guthard for making himself available. Please share this podcast on social media so others can find it easily. Please also subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you will find future episodes of Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, and our Device Talks weekly podcast series right there on your cell phone. If you like, follow, and or subscribe, we'll have future episodes sent directly to you. You can also find past episodes there as well. You can also look, of course, on devicetalks.com for those episodes and intuitive.com. Post it up there as well. Please also uh, connect with me on social media. I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I, at Device Talks. And you can also find me on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks again for tuning in. Please join us next time. We'll have another great story from Intuitive waiting for you on the Intuitive Talks podcast. <laughs>